member. Hello. Can you hear me now? <laughs> Several years ago, I remember the basic youth being challenged to sit in the front row. And I don't know, did anybody challenge them, or did you guys just come up with that on your own? Kevin. Here we go, Kevin. Good job. That's all right. Okay, well, Daniel, you get credit too, I suppose. Great idea. Great idea. You know, that front row's never been off limits, nor for you, Terry. Nor for you. And this front row over here has never been off limits, nor this one over here. Now, Carla will sit over here sometimes. Boy, are we creatures of habit, aren't we? Don't we all just kind of sit wherever we sit? And, you know, I, thought, I think it would be funny sometimes to just come and sit in Ed and Nancy's seat and see what they do. <laughs> They'd probably do just that, just what Ed did right there. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, open with me this morning to Luke chapter 9. We're going to begin reading at verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus... Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. So here we see three of the disciples with Jesus having a literal 
mountaintop experience. That is, they were literally on top of a very real mountain. And they also were having what we might call today a figurative mountaintop experience, an emotional or a spiritual experience. There's a good reason we began reading this passage just before this experience that Peter, James, and John had with Jesus. Note what Jesus said in verse 23 of Luke here where we just read, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What does that have to do with the transfiguration? Well, Jesus is telling his disciples what the norm would be like for their life if they followed him wholeheartedly. Self-denial, taking up the cross, losing your life. How can we say this is going to be the norm? Well, Jesus did say daily, didn't he? Then at the end of this discourse, he tells them that some of them who are there with him at that moment when he spoke those words will see the kingdom of God. And here's where we see the mountaintop experience. Though they were literally on top of a mountain when this happened, the spiritual experience they had was certainly even more significant. Many of us can relate to some degree with what the apostles experienced that day. Many of us have had very real, very emotional, spiritual, mountaintop experiences. And these things are part of the ebb and flow of our Christian lives. About a month, and a, about a month ago, Barb and I had a literal mountaintop experience. There we are. It was also more than that, as evidenced by this morning's message. We had the pleasure of spending about 90 minutes on top of a 14,264-foot mountain in Colorado while we were on vacation. I'd like to say that we climbed this peak like Kirk Wester did about a month before that. He climbed Long's Peak. And by the way, Kirk, Long's Peak was about five feet shorter than the mountain we were on. We were on Mount Evans. But I, but I can't say that. But I can't say that. We took the wimpy route. And because this is the highest paved road in North America, we actually drove to near the top and then hiked about a quarter mile trail, about another 150 feet to the summit. We spent most of this week of vacation at higher elevations, twice driving or hiking or both to nearly 12,000 feet and then this time at more than 14,000 plus. There's something about being so high, no pun intended, that's spiritually inspiring. Part of my temperament finds tremendous peace and real perspective in these kinds of settings. But you know what? There's always the reality that we don't live on the mountaintop. We always come back down to earth. And that's pretty visually striking when you're on vacation in Colorado and you leave the mountains of Colorado and you're headed through the plains of eastern Colorado into the plains of Kansas on the way home to Oklahoma. In less than an hour, you go from these incredible mountain vistas to some very flat terrain. And it can be somewhat of an emotional letdown. But it reminded me of this story in Scripture. And it reminded me that because we don't live on the mountain, figuratively speaking, we must learn to live in the ordinary day-to-day -day existence of the valley, the lower elevations of life. We've all had some kinds of what you might call mountaintop experiences, both secular and spiritual. How about the birth of a child? How about your wedding day? 
How about winning some sort of a championship or award, something really important to you? Graduation, a great vacation. How about a great missions trip? Being born again. And then just in the discourse of our Christian life, experiencing God's manifest presence in some very real, very tangible way. Many of us have had these kinds of things happen right here in this place through the years. We've had this up-and-down existence, and we see it worked out in even more regular ways that maybe aren't quite as big a mountain, but there are still ups and downs. How about weekends versus weekdays? Anybody here doesn't look forward to their weekends or their time off of work? Even if you love your work, you look forward to that time. You look forward to vacations from work. Why do we call these kinds of things mountaintop experiences? Well, in some ways, you can feel like you're on top of the world, just like you do when you're on a literal mountain. It's exhilarating. It's exciting. It's out of the ordinary. The other thing it can do is it can teach you. It can give perspective. It can give clarity. It can renew you. It can refresh you. In these ways, mountaintop experiences are a true blessing from God. Because they tend to renew and restore and refresh, we could even say that we need them to some degree at least. When you think about literal mountaintop experiences, it helps us explain why these figurative mountaintop experiences seem so real to us as well. For example, on a clear mountain day, you can see more clearly from the top of the mountain than from anywhere else. You feel like you can see for miles and miles and miles. And that's literally true in some of these places, because you can. Scripture also speaks of mountaintop experiences, both literally and figuratively in the passage we just read. How about when Moses caught a glimpse of God's presence on the mountain? He carried the literal glow of that experience for a while, but it did fade eventually. All of Israel, the people of Israel, had mountaintop experiences as they saw the miracles that it took to deliver them from Egypt. But the spiritual boost that they got from those miracles didn't last either. We know they were grumbling about things like their food just within days of seeing amazing miracles. The Apostle John had a mountaintop experience which resulted in the book of Revelation. The disciples saw the risen Lord after the resurrection. These kinds of experiences were for Bible characters and are for us a wonderful blessing from God. I believe they are meant to be encouraging and uplifting and sometimes even life-altering. Certainly seeing the risen Lord made a huge difference in the lives of the apostles and really enabled them to endure a lot of things in their personal valleys that they experienced in the days following Jesus' ascension. I believe these experiences are often part of God's purposes in changing us, shaping us, molding us, and teaching us, or maybe just refreshing or renewing us. The fact is, though, these wonderful experiences can and sometimes are a very important part of our life in God. It's what we might call His ordinary presence in our lives that this passage, when it's taken in its entire context, really emphasizes. Now, that's not to say that this was any ordinary experience of all, at all. It clearly wasn't. Here we see Jesus, God made flesh, showing three human beings a glimpse of His once and future glory. In some ways, He was also showing us what eternity 
will look like. Because Revelation tells us about the eternal city. In Revelation chapter 1, 21, verse 23, I'll read it, you don't need to turn there. The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Of course, we know the Lamb is Jesus Himself. Matthew Henry noted about the transfiguration that when it was all said and done, Jesus alone remained with them, and not transfigured, but as He used to be, ordinary, human. Christ does not leave the soul when extraordinary joys and comforts leave it. Christ's disciples have and shall have His ordinary presence with them always, even to the end of the world. Let us thank God for our daily bread and not expect a continual feast this side of heaven. We often see passages like this out of their entire context, and this is another reminder that when we do that, we might miss something important. That's why we began reading the account of the transfiguration before when uh, Jesus was saying these things to his disciples. So our full understanding can be brought to place by what Luke said took place eight days later. So let's back up and look at Luke 9, 20. We see Peter there proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. Now what an amazing pronouncement that is. The disciples had just told Jesus that everyone else thinks he's John the Baptist or he's a prophet, but they, in fact, had come to believe that he was the Messiah, the Anointed One. What's more interesting to me is how Jesus responded to this proclamation, this declaration. You might think he would commend them. Something like, hey, you guys are pretty sharp. It's good to see you've been paying attention. Or how about this? Hey, you guys really have figured this out. So now you're my inside circle, and we're going to turn the world upside down for me. Instead, what happened? Jesus warned them. First, he warned them not to tell anyone what they'd come to believe, and then he started into what we might look at as this very low moment, talking about, of all things, suffering. Worse yet, not just Jesus' suffering, but theirs too. Seems like sort of an awful way to kill the moment, doesn't it? They go from what could have been this very high moment of declaring Jesus to be the Messiah to being told that they must deny themselves, cease to make themselves the object of their own lives and actions. And then at the end of this discourse, Jesus injects a little bit of hope. He says, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Now, there's two primary interpretations of this statement. One is that Jesus was predicting his transfiguration. And the second is that Jesus was predicting the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Both of those were a foretaste of kingdom glory. But the context, in my opinion, shows that Jesus was speaking of what transpired just a little over a week later. That's because of that key transitional phrase we see in verse 28 about eight days after Jesus said this. I believe this phrase connects this account of the transfiguration to all that Jesus had said in the previous several verses, and especially to what he said about seeing the kingdom of God. So, with that in mind, let's take note of the things that immediately preceded Jesus' transfiguration. 
First of all, he acknowledged, he accepted the disciples' confession of him being the Messiah, and he told them to be quiet about it. Secondly, he spoke clearly about his coming suffering, and he invited them to share in this. And third, he promised the coming of the kingdom of God in his own ministry. And that brings us to the actual event itself. Let's take some note of key elements as we begin by looking at verse 28. They were up on a mountain to pray. Now, the other two gospel passages that relate this story, Matthew and Mark, point out that his appearance was transformed or transfigured. The word there is the same Greek word from which we get our English word metamorphosis, which means to change into another form. Peter, James, and John were seeing the brightness of Jesus' glory. Luke says it was as bright as a flash of lightning. Mark says his clothes were dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Matthew says his face shone like the sun, and his clothes were white as light. Then they see Moses, and they see Elijah with Jesus. A few words on this. Why Moses? Why Elijah? Why not Abraham? Why not David? Why not any of a dozen other Old Testament heroes of the faith? It's significant that Moses and Elijah were there because of what they represent. When we read of Jesus or the disciples referring to Scripture, it's often spoken of as the law and the prophets. Remember that phrase? We see that often, the law and the prophets. Moses was the lawgiver, and thus he represented the law. Elijah was the prophet who never died, but who was taken to heaven in a fiery chariot. Together, they represent the law and the prophets, the whole scripture in that day. Think of this scene. Moses and Elijah represented the word of God before Jesus, whom scripture reveals as the living word, came to earth. It's also important to know what the law and prophets point to. The law and the prophets point to the Messiah, who now stood with them. Also important is what these three were overheard talking about. Jesus' departure. We see that word used in Verse 31, which he was about to bring to fulfillment. Now, doesn't that seem like kind of a funny way to talk about Jesus' soon coming suffering, passion, death, departure, about to fulfill? But seen in the context of the law and the prophets, it makes perfect sense. It's not odd at all to hear it put this way. Moses and the prophets had spoken of it, and now they speak of its fulfillment and they speak of it with the one who will fulfill it, Jesus himself. What an amazing scene. What an amazing thing to ponder. It's also interesting to note in Luke 9.32 that as Jesus prayed, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. Anybody here heavy with sleep this morning? Think of it. They almost slept through the transfiguration. I used to worry... When I'd look out, I'm preaching on a Sunday morning, and I see some of you nodding off while I'm preaching. I know who you are. But now I realize that the disciples almost slept through Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. I guess that puts me in pretty good company, doesn't it? I've used this list before, so if you've heard it before and you remember it, please laugh as if you've never heard it before. But this is the ten best things to say if you get caught sleeping at your desk. Number 10, they told me at the blood bank this might happen. 
Number nine, this is just a 15-minute power nap like they raved about in that time management course you sent me to. Number eight, I guess I left the top off the whiteout. You probably got here just in time. Number seven, I wasn't sleeping. I was meditating on the mission statement and envisioning a new paradigm. Number six, I was testing my keyboard for drool resistance. I kind of like that one. Number five, I was doing a highly specific yoga exercise to relieve work-related stress. Number four, gee, why did you interrupt me? I almost figured out a solution to our biggest problem. Number three, the coffee machine is broken. A lot of you can relate to that. Number two, someone must have put decaf in the wrong pot. And number one, the best thing to say if you get caught sleeping at your desk, in Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) But Peter, James, and John didn't sleep through the transfiguration. Abby liked that one. That's why we have this account. Though I find it interesting that the only gospel writer who was actually there was John, and he didn't even include this story in his gospel. However, John did write, In his gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, we have seen his glory. Only Peter referenced it directly in 2 Peter chapter 1, which we'll look at in just a moment here. But back in Luke, verse 32 of what we were looking at, after it notes they were sleepy, it says that when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. Now this is important too. They saw it. The Word of God is not just a bunch of made-up stories. This story is, in fact, an eyewitness account. Peter referred to it this way in 2 Peter chapter 1, where he wrote, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So now the disciples were wide awake. And we have Peter doing what? Offering to build three shelters. Here this word shelters means dwellings, a place to stay or live. God had something else to say to them, and he interrupted Peter speaking from a cloud. God had a point to all this beyond the manifestation of his glory in Jesus. He said in verse 35, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. If there are any key words in this entire passage of Scripture that we're looking at this morning, I think we've heard them here. Listen to him. Yes, the glory was awesome. Yes, this is a real, honest-to-goodness, mountaintop experience. But where do we go from here? Listen to him. Now, here's where we can really relate to the disciples, just like we all tend to do with these mountaintop experiences. Peter wanted to capture the moment. He wanted to preserve it. He wanted to make it last to make it more than just a Kodak moment with a good digital picture. That's understandable. We can all relate to that. Good things are enjoyable, and we don't want them to end. It's good for us to be here, said Peter, and it was, but not just for the great experience of it all. Yes, that was a blessing, 
but it was gravy. It was only part of God's purpose on that mountaintop. It wasn't the meat, if you will. It was the gravy, or maybe you might say it was the dessert, the extra that makes it a great experience, but not the substance of what God really wanted to say that day, what he wanted to accomplish. What God wanted the disciples to remember about this experience is what he told them. He told them to listen to Jesus. Our tendency is to hang on to the afterglow of the experience and miss the fullness of his ordinary presence where we can really listen to him. If we understand it this way, we can never, will never be satisfied with anything less than a particular kind of experience. I think that can be a real problem because the reality of our Christian existence is that what we have most of the time is not his extraordinary presence. Most of life is not a mountaintop experience, in case you haven't noticed. But all of life can be lived in his ordinary presence. Does that discount joy? No. Does that deny experience? Some of these great mountaintop experiences that most of us or all of us have had. No, or as Paul would say, may it never be. But who says his ordinary, everyday presence is any less special than his extraordinary presence? We cannot deny the words of Jesus, who said, I am with you always. Jesus also said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. So while mountaintop experiences are great, we don't live there on the mountain. We live in the valley, and God is with us in the valley too. How we view the experience of God will make a huge difference in how we live our lives. The experiences are a means to the end God wants to accomplish in our lives, and we lose something important when the experience becomes an end in itself. If it's like that, then we're like the Pharisees that Jesus chided for always looking for a sign. God can reveal himself. He does reveal himself in these mountaintop experiences, but we can all learn what the disciples learned on the mountain that day. Listen to him. If we're so wrapped up in the charge we get from these experiences, we may never really learn to listen to anyone let alone Jesus, the living word. That's why God interrupted Peter when Peter said, let's camp here, let's stay here, let's make this experience last. So here we see Jesus' disciples. They've gone from the challenge to join Jesus in his sufferings to the unimaginable heights of this amazing, incredible mountaintop experience and now back down again. That's why it's important to note how this account of the transfiguration ends. Verse 36 says, When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. He was there by himself. Charles Spurgeon preached a great sermon once on the transfiguration. Let's listen to some of the things that he said in this sermon. The best thing, after all, for Peter was not the excessive strain of the transfiguration, nor the delectable company of the two great spirits who appeared with Jesus, but the equally glorious but less exciting society of only Jesus. 
Depend on it, brethren, that ravishing and exciting experiences and transporting enjoyments, though they may be useful as occasional refreshments, would not be so good for every day as that quiet but delightful ordinary fellowship with Jesus alone, which ought to be the distinguishing mark of all Christian life. As the disciples ascended the mountainside with Jesus alone, and as they went back again to the multitude with only Jesus, they were in as good company as when they were on the mountain summit, Moses and Elijah being there also. And although Jesus Christ, in his common ordinary attire, might not so dazzle their eyes as when they saw his raiment bright as the light and his face shining as the sun, yet he really was quite as glorious and his company quite as beneficial. When they saw him in his everyday attire, his presence was quite as useful to them as when he robed himself in splendor. Only Jesus is, after all, upon the whole, a better thing than Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Jesus alone, as the common Jesus, the Christ of every day, the man walking among men, communing in secret with his disciples, is a better thing for a continuance while we are in this body than the sight even of Jesus in the excellence of his majesty. One other thing I want to note from this narrative, because Jesus revealed his glory that day, the disciples had just a taste on that mountain of what they could expect in eternity. Sometimes mountaintop experiences are worth it because it helps us remember that someday we will live in an eternal mountaintop experience with the eternal glory of Jesus lighting our daily existence. And we won't ever have to come back down to the valley. But in the meantime, this is where we live. We do live in the valley. And the mountaintops are wonderful, though fleeting experiences. We need to remember that. Let me close with this brief anecdote. There was a little boy. He was out in his backyard. He was throwing a ball up in the air. And there was a passerby, and he wasn't accustomed to seeing kids just stand there throwing the ball up in the air. And he asked the boy what he was doing. And the boy said, well, I'm playing a game of catch with God. See, I throw the ball up in the air, and he throws it back. Now, I don't know if God plays catch with little boys, but he did create the laws that made it possible. It's predictable, and it's true of our Christian lives. What goes up must come down. You might call it spiritual gravity. Since our lives are not lived in the air, but they're lived on the ground. In other words, let's learn to live in, and yes, even delight in, his ordinary presence. Amen? I'm going to play a song here in a second. And uh, just use it as a meditation. I don't know how the Lord would have you respond this morning. I'll let the Holy Spirit speak to you about that. But after I pray, we're going to play this song and just listen to this and ponder how the Lord would uh, speak to you this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the tremendous reality of your ordinary presence, the day-to-day existence where you promised you'd never leave us or forsake us, where you promised, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. We're grateful for that, Father. We pray that you would indeed help us to learn to live in, to delight in, to experience your ordinary presence. Even, Father, as we're grateful for the uh, mountaintop experiences you give us, 
how they renew us, they refresh us, they restore us, they teach us, they give us perspective. We pray, Heavenly Father, that in the everyday of life, your daily ordinary presence would strengthen us, would sustain us, and cause us to walk wholeheartedly with you as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to build a house up on this mountain Way up high where the peaceful waters flow To quench my thirsty soul Up on the mountain I can see for miles up on this mountain Troubles seem so small they almost disappear Lord I love you up on the mountain My faith is strengthened my all that I see You make it easy for on the mountain Oh, up on the mountain I would love to live up on this mountain And keep the pain of living life so far away But I know I can't stay on the mountain I said I don't know wherever you lead for where you are is where I most want to be and I can tell we're headed for the valley my faith
top of a mountain 